Hello and welcome to Queer as Fact, the podcast bringing you queer history from around the world and throughout time. I'm Irene. I'm Alice. I'm Eli. And today we're going to be talking to you about Sofia Parnock, a lesbian poet from early 20th century Russia, often called Russia's Sappho. Before we start, we have some content warnings for this episode. There will be a mention of someone being outed without their consent, descriptions of chronic illness, and institutionalization for mental health issues, and mentions of the Russian Civil War and related famine. If any of this is something you don't want to hear, feel free to listen to one of our other episodes instead. It has different content and different warnings. Sofia Parnok was born in Taganrog, which is in Russia. If you start at Moscow and go like directly south till you hit the sea, you will be in Taganrog. It's a small seaside town. Okay. So you're just near the border to Ukraine. She was born on July 30th, 1885 to an ethnically Jewish family who was not particularly actually religious, but definitely culturally Jewish. It was also a highly educated family. Her mother was a doctor, Mm. which is, in 1885, particularly remarkable. Mm. That's pretty cool. And both parents valued education highly. She had a governess to teach her German, like, before she was five. I envy Europeans at all times. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) When she was six years old, her mother died giving birth Mm. to her twin younger siblings. But her father continued her education in that vein and by the time she was age six she wrote her first poem oh okay (laughs) unfortunately i don't know what was in her first poem we just know that she wrote it Mm -hmm. that's probably bad it was probably bad yeah i probably wrote a poem when i was six it was probably bad too you probably just discovered that some words rhyme with other words (laughs) it was a big moment anyway so in 1895 at age probably 10 she may still have been nine, I wasn't sure. Yep. She entered the Empress Marie Gymnasium for Girls, which was her high school. By this time, she already knew to some extent that her like sexual attractions were not normal. We have evidence from like mid-high school of her writing poetry about her attractions to women mm-hmm. and her feelings about other girls in her class. Her first still extant poem was written in 1900. Mm. It was about the dance class she went to with her classmates on a Saturday. And basically she goes through the whole class and describes the attractive features of everyone (laughs) in the room. (laughs) Unfortunately, I don't have the poem in the biography I read. The footnote just said, original manuscript in my possession. Oh, So the author of that biography has the poem and chose not to translate it for me. What's the name of the author? Because I feel that we're going to address them. We are going to address them a bunch because they have a lot of these original manuscripts. Diana Bergen is the author. Is she Russian? She speaks Russian. I don't know whether she is Russian herself, but all the poetry translations I'm going to tell you were done by her. Okay. Are there many editions of Sophia's work that are out there? Like, are there many translations of it or is she not... widely appreciated it doesn't seem to be she was not appreciated in russia until fairly recently Mm. because of how russia is because of how the soviet union was about queer people basically she was like reasonably well known in sort of poetry circles in her lifetime Mm -hmm. and then kind of Mm -hmm. was Mm -hmm. forgotten during stalin's time i mean it's not like russia today is any great shakespeare no no, certainly not, but I think just the sort of 
increased like communication yeah. with the world and that kind of yeah, thing yeah, makes yeah. it a little bit harder to lose a poet because yeah. she's gay. Yeah. It's obvious, though, while she's at school that she feels different. She feels isolated from her peers. I'm going to read you this lovely poem that she wrote. It doesn't sound great in English because (laughs) it's a poem, but the contents of it was just very relatable. Uh She's talking about she wants to leave her town. She wants to leave her school. And she says, leave here as soon as possible. Oh, faster. I'm smothering. I'm growing dull. I'm becoming malicious and nasty. I now shun everyone. I don't feel at all engaged with other people. Their happiness gives me no joy. I despise all people. Animals are a hundred times dearer to me. Okay. Before we got up to the animals, I was like, Irene, are you okay? I'm that fine. This it, was animals. Okay. <laughs> it was the animals. It was that point she got where she was like, I hate people. Only animals. <laughs> does she have any key pets throughout her life? She does have a pet later on. Good. Which I will tell you about briefly later on. <laughs> it like... is a good pet. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like this is a pretty like stock queries fact episode. If we're like, here's some relatable poetry and an animal. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's why I had to read you that poem. Yeah. If she gets a wife, she'll be every queer woman we've ever talked about. <laughs> That's factual. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I will not tell you yet. That's reasonable. <laughs> In 1901, she took a summer holiday with her family to Balaclava, where she had what appears to be her first same-sex relationship. Oh, good. We, again, don't know a huge deal about this other girl. The only details are from poetry, which the only copy of this poetry is a manuscript in the hands of Diana Bergen, it seems. Oh, no. Yeah, basically all we know about her is she seems to have kind of provided an introduction to mm-hmm. romance for Sophia mm-hmm. and kind of introduced her to this idea that she can have female partners. Is that not something that she was already actively wanting? Like if she was aware already that she was attracted to women? She was aware of being attracted to women and I don't think she necessarily knew that there were other women who might be attracted to her or that oh, okay. she could do anything with this. She was just sort mm-hmm. of aware that she had these feelings that other people didn't have mm-hmm. oh, yeah. and that all the girls in her class were very good looking. <laughs> but she was unlike them in some way. Okay, yeah. Do we have um, photos of her or like paintings of her or? We definitely do have photos of her. Okay, cool. So she continues basically in this general vein for the sort of late years of her high school and her early 20s, having like short term relationships with women, like sort of on again, off again girlfriends, fairly casual relationships. Her father is concerned about her, less Mm. because of her relationships with women, which, as we've established in a lot of other contexts, are fairly acceptable when you're a teenage girl. It seems like her relationships with schoolmates, those sort of short-term, intense, almost romantic friendships, were seen as fairly acceptable, but her father was concerned that she showed no interest in men and also that she didn't seem to have any, like, ambitions or career plans or any sort of study plans for herself Mm -hmm. she was interested in poetry and music but didn't seem to have the sort of drive or intention to follow that anywhere okay that's also relatable i suppose (laughs) yeah (laughs) her career especially in her 20s was quite relatable there was a lot of she was like it's not that i feel a vocation for poetry or i'm called to poetry it was just the most enjoyable of the like limited and not very useful skills that I had. Oh, wow. <laughs> she oh, was no. very, she was interested in very much the arts. Mm-hmm. And she was like, I don't know what to do with this. She at one point briefly tried to study law and then was like, that was a mistake. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> and she ceased to. 
Somewhere during this time, she met the poet Vladimir Volkenstein. Well, that's a great name. That is a solid name. Yep. Volkenstein. A solid name. I don't know exactly how she met him. They correspond for a while and then meet in person. The two of them have a lot in common. They become close friends very quickly. I'm told they had similar senses of humour and loved puns and pranks. Unfortunately, <laughs> I was not given any concrete examples of pranks they did together. Oh no. Oh, no. I love learning about historical pranks. And they also have a lot of the same ideas about poetry and writing and what they like and where they sort of want that art form to go mm-hmm. and share a lot of taste in music. When she tells him about her sexuality, she tells him she's exclusively attracted to women and he seems quite accepting of this. Ah, oh, good on Vlad. Vladimir Volkenstein. <laughs> I was like, I know Volkenstein, but I've already forgotten his first name. Do you know what music, they, what music she liked? Like you said, they shared taste in music. They like a lot of those kind of nationalist Russian composers. I think Vladimir Volkenstein had some mutual friends with Rimsky-Korsakov. They're in a lot of those kind of like creative circles together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. Anyway, so she becomes close friends with Vladimir. They get on really well, but she continues to sort of concern her family mm-hmm. who feel like she should be getting married or at least doing something with her life. And eventually in 1907, she essentially seems to give in to family pressure and she and Vladimir decide they're going to get married. Okay. okay. This wasn't like 100% giving in to family pressure. She respected him a lot. It was going to give her financial independence from her family, mm-hmm. which she wanted. She was very interested in having children as well. Oh, okay. okay. So she and Vladimir got married. Is he queer or is he interested in her or do we not know? I'm told he loved her, but I don't really know in what way he loved her. They do have a sexual relationship, which seems to have surprised him because Mm -hmm. she's been very clear that she's only interested in women. So why do they have a sexual relationship? Like just for him or is she... I think it's partly for him because he enjoys it. It's partly she wants to have children. And I do think it's partly even though she's not sexually attracted to him the intimacy mm-hmm. she kind of enjoys anyway it's nice, okay. it's nice yeah okay she does write a little at the time about how she finds sexual relationships with men unsatisfying mm-hmm. they're mm-hmm. not what she's looking for okay. she writes this poem about sex with men essentially <laughs> about sex with vladimir which says there is a mystery more boring than ours and simpler the merging of one soul with another soul beloved by her where the two souls are feminine words. Okay. And so I think what she's sort of saying there is that a relationship with a woman just feels much more. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it's like just kind of like sex with men is just like eh, as opposed to being like awful. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, she's like fine with it. Okay. Unfortunately, or possibly fortunately in the long run, the marriage doesn't last very long. For a variety of reasons, she finds out during this time that she's infertile. So she can't have children. Beyond that, it's not very clear what happens. In late 1908, she goes to Moscow for Christmas to visit some friends. In January, she writes to Vladimir, sort of saying, you know, when she's planning to return home and everything seems normal. And two weeks later, she's decided not to return home and asked for a divorce. Oh, okay. 
it's not really clear what's happened here. She talks later on about how she felt artistically stifled by him. Mm-hmm. She would often like show him her poems to get advice and things like that. And she talks later on about how she felt he was stifling the valuable parts of her poetry. Yeah. Okay. And that kind of thing. But it's not really clear what dramatic change happened in those two weeks. Mm. I mean, it could have been something that she was weighing and she was kind of like, no, 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 I'll just write to him and I'll just go back. And then she was like, actually, no. Like, it might not necessarily have been a complete turnaround. Yeah, no, it might not have been. So I'm seeing that we don't have, like, as many sources as we would want here. We really don't, or at least not a lot that I could get to. And even Diana Bergen, who was that, like, major biography that I used, who reads Russian, still came to a lot of those. So there's nothing we really know about what happened to her in this year sort of stuff. So, yeah, yeah, there isn't... Mm -hmm a lot of material about her. Diana Bergen did write in her introduction that we know little about parts of Sophia Parnock's life and things like that. And what she sort of said was, really the question here isn't why do we know so little about her? It's that it's remarkable that we know so much. Okay. Considering that she's this lesbian poet from a period when that was really not Mm -hmm. acceptable. Mm -hmm. She seems to be having a pretty chill time of things for someone who's living at a time when this is not acceptable like the circles she's in generally are fairly accepting Uh of her sexuality but as a poet she finds it very hard because what she's writing is often not acceptable for publication Mm -hmm. or is hard to get published or gets published and just doesn't get taken seriously Mm -hmm. i think that's a lot of her issues is much more that what matters to her is dismissed yeah, okay. rather than that it's sort of directly condemned. Yeah, okay. In any case, the divorce is fairly long and protracted. It's not very amiable. I think Vladimir Aww. is quite shocked by it. Aww. It comes as unexpected to him and he doesn't really handle it well. Yeah. Whether he is just in love with her and upset that she's leaving, it's not really clear. Whether it just turns out that he's not as good about her sexuality as he seemed to mm. or thought he was. So do they have, like, no-fault divorce? She needs him to agree to Uh, it. okay. Okay. There's this ongoing thing where she kind of petitions to him for a divorce and he's like, no, no, come back. Yeah, well, it's not great. (laughs) Yeah, it's not great. At one point he writes to her younger siblings and basically outs her to them. He's like, Sophia Parnock is a lesbian. She's leaving me to have a lesbian relationship. And Sophia writes to Vladimir and he's like, look, I get you're upset with me, but I don't know why you had to involve my family. Yeah. So he's not as good about it as he pretends. He's definitely not as good about it as he pretends to be. Or possibly he thought he was comfortable with it. And then when he was married to her, he realized that. Mm. Even if he's not uncomfortable with it, like he's certainly willing to use it to manipulate her. Yeah. Their friendship before the marriage seems to have been quite good. Like they're quite supportive of each other Mm -hmm. and their work and they read poetry to each other and that kind of thing. And then everything just kind of goes to hell in the marriage, basically. Well, that's a shame. So then by sort of the end of 1909, she writes to a friend and she says, I've wasted a lot of time and energy searching for the right person. Now I want to try and see if I won't profit more from the company of books with which I've had little contact. That sounds nice. She's left Vladimir. He agrees to divorce her. Mm -hmm. And she's decided to focus seriously on her poetry instead. So she discovers fairly quickly that it's not really going to be possible for her to support herself through her poetry alone. 
Is that just because of sexism? Yeah, it's partly it's sexism. It's partly poetry is just a fairly unreliable mm. source of income. Like sometimes you can publish books, sometimes nobody wants to publish your poetry. Yeah. And she needs more reliable income than that. And it's partly just the kinds of poetry she wants to write are not really of any interest to the sort of established poetry. What's the word? The establishment. <laughs> yeah, the poetry <laughs> establishment. She, at this time, kind of internalizes a lot of that. And there's a lot of her writing where she talks about how the things that she wants to write about are tawdry and melodramatic. Her life is like a cheap novel. So what sort of stuff does she want to write about? Basically, she wants to write about her attraction to women. She wants to Mm -hmm. write romantic poetry about other women. Mm -hmm. And she just finds that people kind of find this cheap and scandalous and not literary. Mm -hmm. And so she finds it quite hard to get published. Yeah. She takes a job at a newspaper writing reviews, which a friend gets for her. Book reviews? Yeah, like book reviews, poetry reviews, that kind of thing. She's a sort of literary critic person. She's not very keen on it. She writes to the friend and says, Thank you for arranging for me to write reviews. No doubt I'll like the work, but at the moment I'm utterly exhausted. It's obvious that without a salary I can't support myself no matter where I might go, even to heaven. It's horribly tedious. (laughs) In general, her literary criticism is fairly... I don't really want to say conservative because we have a lot of ideas tied into conservativeness Mm -hmm. where Mm -hmm. we tie together a whole lot of different things about what a conservative believes that aren't really connected. But she tends to prefer work which is more styled like the classic works of Russian literature than she does Mm. more experimental modern work. Is that her personal taste or is that just because she's like, this is just a job and I might as well do things that will be widely acceptable? It's not very clear. The literary criticism that she writes, she writes under a male pseudonym. The name she chooses is this kind of intensely typical masculine Russian name. Okay. And so it might just be that she's chosen this kind of acceptable persona. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you know what the name is? Andre Polyanin, I think. That is a Russian name. Yeah. <laughs> it's a very Russian name. Confirmed. So Diana Bergen, she almost kind of implied there was some hypocrisy in the fact that Sophia's literary criticism was so conservative when she was progressive in her personal life, as in Mm -hmm. she was a woman attracted to women and was fairly open about that. I felt I had to bring this up because I think we do this weird thing a lot, like I said, where we connect a bunch of things which we currently think of as conservative and progressive values that don't really have anything in common. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I just sort of wanted to say here that there's not, I think, anything inherently unusual or hypocritical about the fact that she prefers more conservative poetry, although she is socially progressive. Okay, yeah. I will read you, though, a hilarious review that she wrote. Oh, good. This is very beautiful. It's only, it's a couple of sentences from it. It's a book by a man called Andre Belli called Petersburg, and she says... Irony has never been the mother of a large-scale work of fiction. A large child can't be carried to term in a small pelvis. Thus, what has happened was inevitable. A large child has appeared prematurely, and Andre Belli's Petersburg makes the kind of unnerving, unnatural impression that a giant premature baby would produce. (laughs) (laughs) I don't really know what that meant, but it was... (laughs) It just made me laugh so much that she was working a serious job... As a literary critic, and she read this book and she was like, this book was bad. It was like a giant baby. <laughs> Just imagine him reading that and being like, I guess I'm insulted. 
You are like a large baby. <laughs> Not just a large baby, but a large premature baby. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> oh, dear. Around this time, she met Iraida Ulbricht, who was the daughter of a wealthy Moscow socialite. I'm not really clear again a lot of what happened in their early friendship, but they do move in together fairly quickly. <laughs> All right. Okay. And a good start. It is also like fairly clear that this is a romantic relationship. What's her name? Irida? Irida. Okay. So we have this quote from her which says, I'm renting a whole apartment, have even acquired some furniture, and now as a result of luxury far beyond my means, I'm a stay at home in Kolokolnikov Lane with my girlfriend and a monkey. Who, by the way, despite... (laughs) I told you there was an animal. Who, by the way, despite her considerable monkey charm, is rather unbearable as a housemaid for humans. I thought at this time that the monkey probably belonged to Irida, but Sophia just continues to have custody of the monkey after this. (laughs) So it's presumably it's Sophia's monkey. So that's at least three queer women with monkeys that we have covered in this podcast. True. (laughs) That's a weird coincidence yeah do either of you feel like you're about to imminently obtain a monkey i will let you know if i do (laughs) okay do you know the monkey's name no unfortunately i don't i just know that there was a monkey the monkey does come up again it's mentioned in later quotes okay and the monkey's a bad housemate but she keeps the monkey for a long time (laughs) yes she's won over by the monkey charm several years at least (laughs) in 1914, Sophia and Irida take a trip through Europe together. Mm-hmm. They go to Italy, they go to Germany. When World War One breaks out, the two of them are in London together. Okay. As soon as possible, they return to Moscow. Sophia sets about trying to find where her younger siblings are to make sure that mm-hmm. they're okay, they'll be safe. And she finds her sister fairly quickly. Her sister is in Berlin visiting friends. She sends her some money. And a letter, and it's like, look after yourself. Oh, yeah, that's good. And she has a much harder time tracking down her younger brother. In the end, it turns out that while she's been away, he has become a fierce Zionist and has gone to Palestine. She tries to wire him money in Jaffa. He's on his way to Palestine, and she's told by the bank that they can't send money there. She doesn't have contact with him for a long time. Okay, okay, yep. At this time, two other major things happen in Sophia's life. The first is, at a poetry salon run by a close friend, she meets another female poet, Marina Tsvetaeva. Marina is 23. She's already married to a young student named Sergei. How old is Sophia at this time? 29. And she has a two-year-old daughter called Ariadne. She's never been in a same-sex relationship before, but she's always considered herself bisexual and been attracted to women as well as men. I see where this is going. It's going (laughs) where you think it's going. And she recalls falling for Sophia basically at their first meeting. Mm. So Sophia comes into this poetry salon and a friend grabs Sophia and is like, there's another female poet here, you need to meet her, and introduces her to Marina. And Marina pretty much says... They, like, clinked glasses in greeting, and she thought to herself, be my Orestes. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> I just imagine her, like, straight face while mentally being like, yes. <laughs> yeah, that's basically what happens there. I like that. It's the new Are You Achilles? <laughs> yep. <laughs> oh, that's good. Beautiful. The first little while of their relationship is fairly slow to develop. Like, they spend time together. And they're both obviously into each other. 
but neither of them is really ready to go any further than that, than to, like, become friends, basically. I guess Marina is married with a child, so she probably has some things to negotiate there. Yeah, she Even just in her own head, if not with her partner. Yeah. Her partner seems to be aware of the relationship, and she maintains both relationships for the whole time that they're together. Okay. I mean, additionally, Sophia has Erida still at this time. Mm Mm-hmm. Neither of them seems to expect a monogamous relationship from each other, although the fact that there are other relationships on the side for both of them does cause some sort of tension. Mm-hmm. Okay. They do kind of talk about jealousy and being afraid that they're not the one who can give the other what they want and that kind of oh, thing. Okay. Yeah. But they do eventually enter into a relationship. At this time, Sophia doesn't write a lot of poetry, but Svetayeva writes an entire cycle entitled Girlfriend. <laughs> which is just like a whole series of poems about Sophia. Beautiful. Do we have any of those in English or no? We do. I have some translations of them here. The first one she writes, I think she wrote a couple of days after their first meeting. And the one verse of it that I have translated goes, Is this really all a dream? Because of the ironical enchantment that you aren't a he. <laughs> I just love that. That's just one line on its own. You aren't a he. I love it. And that was delightful to me. And then a little later, they have sex for the first time. They're still at this point, they seem to be in a kind of friends with benefits arrangement because Marina feels as though she's trying to seduce Sophia romantically and isn't getting anywhere. But they are having sex. But they are having sex. Okay. It's the first time she's had sex with a woman. And she writes this poem that goes, what happened really? What do I so regret and want? I don't know. Did I conquer? Was I overcome? And I thought that was interesting Mm. because Mm. I thought of when we were talking the other day about sort of penetration as a zero-sum game. (laughs) Oh, yeah, the ancient Roman model of sex. Yeah, and I thought it was quite interesting that she had sex with a woman and then she was like, I don't know what happened. Who won? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I wonder if that is what that means. Because you were saying she also feels like she's trying to seduce Sophia at this time. Like, did I conquer would just mean, like, have I successfully seduced her now? But was I overcome is also in there. Yeah, like, that does seem to be, like, the traditional roles you have in sex if you're a woman who's having sex with a man. I've kind of been thrown out the window. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's also a valid reading. She didn't know how to read that dynamic, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Years later, I have to read you this because it's about the monkey. (laughs) Years (laughs) later... Marina's daughter Ariadne wrote about remembering the visits that Marina made to Sophia's house. And she says, Mama had a friend, Sonia Panok. She also wrote poetry, and Mama and I sometimes went to visit her. Sorry, just a moment. Is Sonia just a diminutive of Sophia? Yeah. Okay. I've tried generally to use consistent names for everyone, but Russian is all over the place with this, and there are like seven diminutives for every name. And I didn't want to change it within a quote. No, that's fair enough. I was just checking. Mama would read her poems to Sonia. Sonia would read her poems to Mama. And I would sit on a chair waiting to be shown the monkey. (laughs) (laughs) Because Sonia had a real live monkey who lived in the other room. (laughs) (laughs) That's just such a vivid picture of like a small child being like, they're reading poetry and it's boring, but I know the monkey lives here. do I get to see the monkey? Yeah. I really want to know what exactly the like living situation for this monkey was. I don't know. It's just in the other room. Like <laughs> it has a room. What? Is it a bedroom? Is it in a cage or is it just sort of like this is the monkey's tiny bed? And this is the monkey's tiny chest of drawers. <laughs> 
This is the monkey's tiny basket where it keeps its bananas. <laughs> the second thing which happened to Sophia in this year is that she seems to have discovered Sappho. I ah. see. Yes. So in 1914 and 1915, two books of like Sappho's fragments were published in Russian, I think for the first time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And this kind of set off what Bergen described as a minor rage for Sappho mm-hmm. in Russia. Mm-hmm. So I assume that these fragments that have been published are not including like anything about Sappho loving women. They will include things about Sappho loving women, but these just tend to get read as this kind of intense friendship, or she is a teacher who is feeling a motherly love for her students. That's quite a new idea at this point. Mm. It's garbage. Also. It's garbage. Yeah. The closest that people kind of got to Sappho had some kind of same-sex attraction was to describe this very, like, mystical, platonic, Mm. erotic but not physical attraction for women, which was in some way purer and more artistic than the unclean same-sex lesbian love that gross women in Moscow (laughs) were doing right now. Yeah, it's, like, quite easy to read, like, Sappho's poems about women into something that's socially acceptable if you're so inclined. Yeah. They were very into that... What's that story about the man that she kills herself for? Yeah, so there's this kind of ongoing myth. We're not really quite sure where it came from. But it's definitely not real, let me be clear. It did (laughs) not happen that Sappho threw herself off a cliff because she couldn't get a guy to love her. Yeah. His name was Faun. He was the most beautiful man in the world. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. Anyway, so yeah, Russia is really into Sappho at this time, Mm -hmm. but they're really into this, like, heterosexual version of Sappho, which yeah. they've created. In any case, though, Sophia basically entirely rejected that reading of Sappho and was like, look, clearly this is a woman writing poetry about other women. Mm-hmm. And she would often, like, borrow a single-line fragment from Sappho and build her own poem around it. That's oh. so interesting. That's cool. She writes this one to Marina. The fragment of Sappho I have translated as, like a small girl, you appeared in my presence ungracefully. Mm-hmm. She writes this poem and goes, Like a small girl, you appeared in my presence ungracefully. Ah, Sappho's single line shaft pierced to my very core. During the night, I leaned over your curly head pensively. Tenderness stilled passion's mad rush in my heart. Like a small girl, you appeared in my presence ungracefully. And that's just one verse of this poem that she wrote. <laughs> but that's something which she did quite a lot take one line or one fragment of Sappho and build something of her own around it, which That's was about cool. same-sex love. In December 1915, Sophia and Irida Albrecht seem to have broken up. They moved out of that apartment that Sophia described, and Sophia takes the monkey with her. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still unclear whose monkey it was in the first place. The but... monkey is its own. Yes, but Sophia keeps the monkey. They asked the monkey, who would you like to have casted at your view? And the monkey thought about it. Then it picked up its basket of bananas. <laughs> yes, <laughs> and went with Sophia. That is right. Around the same time, Sophia and Marina's relationship has a lot of tension in it mm. for a variety of reasons. For one, Marina really longs to have more children. She has this sort of weird thing where she says a lot to Sophia how nice it would be to have a child with Sophia. That doesn't seem that weird a thing, really. It's quite a weird thing because 
Sophia is infertile and quite upset about this. And Marina is quite almost resentful of Sophia that they can't couple the way a heterosexual couple can and produce a child that's genetically theirs. Okay. Well, I she feel writes, Marina is just as much to blame for that as Sophia. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Many years later, this is like decades later when she's living in Paris, she's broken up with Sophia. Yeah. And she writes this weird tract about problems with lesbian relationships. And one of the major things in it, she says, that the major curse of a lesbian partnership is that the older partner can't give the younger partner a child. And you're very much looking at this like, you're writing this as though this is a universal to lesbian relationships, but you're clearly referring to one thing here. (laughs) (laughs) It's interesting that she said the older one can't give the younger one a child. Marina always very much portrayed herself as playing this kind of innocent young boy role. Yes. Wait, so when you say the older one can't give the younger one a child, you don't mean the older one can't impregnate the younger one. You mean the older one can't bear a child for the younger one. Which do you mean? I mean, she's oh, not, doesn't okay. really matter. She's not very clear. Like, neither of them can impregnate the other. I mean, that's also true. Mm. I guess the phrasing still, like, depicts one of them as the one who has to do the impregnating. Like, it's not yeah. just, like, neither can give the other a child. Like, they're definitely yeah. projecting definitely. roles into the older one and the younger one. <laughs> yeah. It's not only Marina. Sophia also often talks about Marina's, like, boyishness or her, like, child... What's the word? Childlikeness. Childlikeness yeah. is probably... Well, even that Sappho quote she chose, what is it? You yeah. came to me like a young girl ungracefully or something. Yeah. Yeah, like that's within that vein. But it, it is a young girl in that. Yeah. I mean, and if you're looking for Sappho poems about young boys to fit in your lesbian relationship, you might be... Something's gone awry. A weirdly niche thing to need. But Why there's... a boy and not a girl? I don't know. They just like both use this language fairly often where they talk about Marina as boyish. Okay. That's she's described as having a boyish appearance uh-huh. in that she wears her hair short and she's very like slender uh-huh. and doesn't have curves. Yeah. So if Marina is being conceptualized as a young boy in this mm-hmm. relationship, what's Sophia being conceptualized as? I don't want to make this weird, but I think almost she's playing a motherly role here. And I don't know how much of this, again, is Marina later on kind of wanting to absolve herself of the blame of being in this unacceptable relationship. Sophia's playing this nurturing role, but Marina also kind of reads it as though she's being led astray by Sophia. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of a nurturing role, but also a seductress role. So yeah, I'm not really sure what to make of that, other than whether they felt they had to read this kind of heterosexual. Mm. But even then, it's interesting that Sophia is playing the older role, but is definitely the woman here. Yeah, that is interesting. Yeah. At the same time as well, so in late 1915, Sophia started collecting her poetry to put into a book. Oh, good. Which she simply called Poems. A very strong first book of poetry name contender, as I understand it, in all of human history, yes. Indeed. So Poems was an anthology, basically, of her poetry from the years 1912 to 1915. She (laughs) discarded everything that she'd written before 1912 as bad and not worth it. Okay. In 1912, she was 27, which I found quite reassuring, honestly. I read that and I was like, cool. So my good work is coming soon. (laughs) Yeah. 
Like a few more years of garbage to churn out, apparently, which I guess is reassuring in a way. Yeah. It was divided into five sections, which each had a theme, and they were of uneven length. So the sections dealt with wandering, death, Russia and the war, love and poetry, and love and remembering. Uh-huh. Hmm, I didn't consider uh, like, themes. This is building to a gay thing, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, the love lyrics, which were roughly a third of the book between love and poetry and love and remembering, introduced what Diana Bergen, I don't know whether this is true or not, and I always hesitate to be one of those things that says that this is the first time of, like, same-sex this was ever published or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but... Yeah. Diana Bergen says this was the first openly lesbian poetic speaker and desiring subject ever to be heard in a book of Russian poetry. Mm-hmm. It may well be she was the first published lesbian poet in Russian. Or the first poet publishing poems specifically about being a lesbian. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't sound implausible to me. I'm just hesitant to make mm-hmm. that this was the first time statement. Yeah. yeah. The superlatives yeah. are always a bit... Yeah. Yeah. In any case, it was certainly an unusual thing to manage to get published. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So how did she publish it? She found a publishing company okay, that was yeah. willing to do this, apparently. I wasn't sure if there'd be some like big story. Of course, there was like, you know, she did. <laughs> there wasn't really a story. She was, by this time, getting published fairly regularly in journals and magazines and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. A lot of the poems in this book had been published previously. So I think she may have just, like... Eased them into uh-huh. lesbian yeah. poetry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Obviously, there was a lot of response that basically said this was grotesque. It mm. was, you know, as you expect, this was dangerous, bad, etc. But the more positive critics, they generally gave it positive reviews, but avoided directly mentioning the, the same-sex attraction. Mm-hmm. They would mm-hmm. review it and kind of say, this is good poetry, great lyric poetry, her words are beautiful, she's very good, and never kind of address the subject matter. Which I assume led to a bunch of people getting it and being like, hang on a gosh darn minute. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I yeah. think so. I think so. But overall, the book seems to have been relatively successful. That's nice. At least positively received. Good. At this same time, though, her health was deteriorating. She, for most of her life, suffers from some kind of a thyroid problem, which causes a bunch of different issues Yeah, to do with, like, headaches, digestive issues, muscle weakness, like a whole range of mm. problems, basically. Mm. This put further strain on her relationship with Marina, basically, mm. because she would sort of encourage Marina to go out and go to parties and have fun. And it's fine I... if you go out without me, I don't mind, but Marina would go out. And still feel guilty while she was out there that she left Sophia at home sick. Oh, yeah, yeah. And even though she knew Sophia was fine with it, she kind of came to resent her for having to carry that kind of guilt while she was out. During this time, she met a friend at a party and she was sort of saying to them, oh, look, I'm going to go home early just to check on Sophia. And her friend said, oh, no, 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 stay. And she said, I know I'll never be able to forgive myself whether I stay or go. It's really hard. Yeah, Yeah. it just genuinely seems to have been quite hard on her. Yeah. And during one of these parties, which she attended briefly and guiltily, she ran into Osip Mendelstam, who was a poet which both of them had met previously at, you know, poet gatherings that they've had, who'd showed romantic interest in her before. Is Osip a man? Yeah, Osip is a man. Okay. They apparently had a conversation, the contents of which we obviously don't know, which they felt needed to be continued at a later date. About a month after, Mendelstam turned up in Moscow, where he didn't normally live, 
and came round to Marina's house and said we should continue that conversation if you want to show me around Moscow. So Marina still lives with her husband at the moment. Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay, so Marina's about to have an incredibly busy love life, is she? Yes. (laughs) Yes. But at the same time, Sophia had become close with another woman, the actress Ludmilla Araskaya. Bergen made much of Ludmilla's physical difference from Marina. So Marina always gets described as this kind of slender, golden, small, boyish, and Ludmilla, by comparison, is described as tall and statuesque and dark and very feminine. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. And I feel like the book made a deal out of this in order to kind of draw comparisons and kind of make a love triangle that wasn't really there. So during those few days when Mandelstam was in Moscow, Marina took that time to show him around Moscow, became very close to him, and it was sort of, I think, the first time she'd managed to enjoy herself without worrying about Sophia mm. in a while. Meanwhile, Ludmilla came round to Sophia's place to keep her company, where she was at home sick. And they also had some conversations about their relationship. This sounds like it could develop into a, like, better situation for people who are already doing polyamory. It mm. sounds kind of okay. From Sophia's perspective, it's okay. Marina comes back after these few days and Ludmilla is there and essentially in the near future after that Sophia and Marina break up. From Sophia's perspective, she sees this fairly positively. She sort of sees, you know, that relationship was over, but it was a good experience. I got a lot from it. I don't resent her. From Marina's point of view, I mean, I think she was a lot younger. Mm. It was a lot more significant to her being her first same-sex relationship. So Marina was, I think, quite hurt by this. Though they don't remain close, she continues to sort of be concerned about Sophia throughout her life. Like, Mm -hmm. when it comes up that sort of Sophia needs help, Marina will contact people for her and that kind of thing. But Overall, Marina is much more, I think, hurt by this and becomes quite resentful. Mm -hmm. And you can see, like I said before, in the 30s, she writes this sort of anti-lesbian tract, which was essentially directly aimed at her experience with Sophia, which she generalizes to all lesbian relationships. So Mm. is this the only lesbian relationship we're aware of Marina having had? No, she does have another one later on. Okay, before or after she writes that tract? Before. Okay. It's possible that details of the other one also made it into that tract, Mm -hmm. veiled as, like, things that all lesbians do. (laughs) Yes, Marina and Sophia break up, basically. Marina Mm -hmm. still has a husband. She has this other relationship, but she feels quite hurt and betrayed by it. Sophia, meanwhile, like, it's quite a lot of emotional turmoil for her. She spends the summer at the seaside, kind of taking a break from life. Mm -hmm. And then after the summer, she and Ludmilla move in together in the town of Sudak on the Crimean Peninsula. Okay. With the monkey? The monkey hasn't been mentioned for a while, but I assume he's... Sorry, she is still around. You misgendered the monkey. I did misgender the monkey. I apologize. Maybe Marina took the monkey. I don't know. I never found mention of the monkey after this, but chances are that's just that it never came Mm. up. Oh, younger lesbians wish older lesbians could give them a child and resent being left only with a monkey. (laughs) (laughs) The quintessential lesbian experience. (laughs) The Tsar abdicated in the February of 1917 after a kind of 
a weird, complicated period of temporary governments. The Bolsheviks came to power in the October, who are communists, in case anyone didn't know. After this comes the Civil War, where the Bolsheviks and what remains of the Russian aristocracy try and kind of fight for dominance over Russia. Mm. The Bolsheviks ultimately win that war. This wasn't really significant to Sophia's personal politics. She wasn't particularly politically engaged in either direction. Okay. She had definitely spent some time with political activists before. At one point, Vladimir Volkenstein got arrested in his youth for political activity. Mm -hmm. But personally, she doesn't have a lot of deep political feelings beyond a kind of patriotic love for Russia. Mm -hmm. So she's like pessimistic about the revolution, but she kind of hopes that she's wrong. Mm-hmm. She's like, I don't think this will go well, but she does write that she hopes she's wrong and it will be a fairy tale with a happy ending. Mm. That would have been nice. That would have been nice for all that of us. Very nice. Yeah. The sort of major tangible effect it has on her is that in the turmoil, one of the major newspapers with whom she's been working and regularly published over the last five years or something has to be closed down. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And so she loses this source of reliable income. So in the winter of 1919, Sophia was arrested for what seems to just be showing insufficient support for the communists because she doesn't have any strong feelings in either direction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it was definitely one of those periods where it mm. was very easy to be unjustly arrested as a political prisoner because you were moderately wealthy, which she wasn't, or you were very educated, or you were which not... she was? She was probably, for a woman, quite educated, but she was also very involved in those kind of artistic circles. She was very intellectual. And it was also just fairly easy to get arrested for mm-hmm. nothing. Just, reasons, just yeah. existing and yeah. not being a hardcore communist. I mean, I guess if you're in those artistic circles, like, those are the sort of circles that can and do, like threatened governments and like yeah what they write about so if you're not actively supporting them then they might see you as a threat that they should get rid of before you start writing anything yeah against them. she's not imprisoned for very long but the difficult conditions don't help her health mm-hmm. and she contracts tuberculosis oh. oh great yeah at the same time because of the war as well as just like climate conditions there was a severe drought at this time Food in Sudak was fairly scarce. Mm-hmm. And a friend of hers, Maximilian Volishin, when she came out of prison, managed to find both her and Ludmilla jobs in the city. And he sort of writes and he says, look, I found you jobs. You both should come back to Moscow. And she wrote back to him, thanking him for his comradely regard. That's her words. And says, thank you. I've already made up my mind to die in Sudak. Ludmilla also thanks you, but her health problems prohibit her from leaving Sudak too. So they elect to stay. However, the famine continues longer than anyone expected. So the following summer, they decide that the risk of traveling with their health issues is probably worth it. So she and Ludmilla managed to get a train back to Moscow, which is quite difficult to do at this period mm-hmm. because of civil unrest and everyone wanting to go back to Moscow. Yeah. Uh-huh. And when she got there, she immediately joined the writer's union, found a room to stay in, and then set about raising money for her friends back in Sudak. Oh, 
That's nice. So she came up with the idea of writing courtly sonnets to the women who hosted literary salons around Moscow in exchange for donations. She writes, <laughs> yeah, that's cute. <laughs> she writes this lovely line at this time to a friend where she says about the time, I couldn't write a line to get something for myself, but in this case, I seem to be able to bake sonnets from dawn to dusk. <laughs> Does she say bake sonnets? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, she does. There was just something very nice about that. She has some success with this. She wrote a sonnet in honour of Eudoxia Nicotina. A young healthy woman with a turned up nose, ruddy complexion and short haircut. A swell coachman who drives with swagger a whole team of literary horses of the most diverse breeds. Her ambition is a salon and indeed she has enough will to have one. I just liked that description. She sounded like a cool lady. Yeah, I liked a bit about the horses. Yes, the metaphorical horses. horses. Yeah, yeah, the literary horses. Anyway, she writes a sonnet in honour of Eudoxia's birthday, and in exchange, Eudoxia agreed to host a fundraising evening which raised 14 million rubles. How much is that in money that I would understand? It's very unclear because of inflation in Russia at this time. The million on the end shouldn't necessarily make us think that's a huge sum. No, but it's a fairly good sum in that she's able to get a number of her friends passage to Moscow with this and send money and food to the people who remained behind. So she writes this sonnet and having earned 14 million rubles from it writes, that means I earned a million rubles per line, an honorarium heretofore unknown, even in Soviet Russia. (laughs) (laughs) Which I thought was quite cute. Let's start writing sonnets to fund our podcast. At the same time, though, she was having trouble getting her own work published. Mm -hmm. Mostly it was not the same-sex issue which caused problems at this time. She'd kind of been exploring her spirituality over the last few years. She had a number of friends who were very involved with the Russian Orthodox Church, Mm -hmm. and she'd been sort of getting involved in that. And so she writes a lot of articles and poems at this time which refer to God and the Soviet policy is that you can mention God in your poem, that's fine, but you're not allowed the capital G. Uh It has to be a lowercase. Okay. And this caused her a great deal of stress because she desperately needed the money, but the idea of eliminating this kind of mark of respect to God from her manuscripts was very difficult for her. Mm -hmm. And in the end, she agreed to a contract with the state publishing house. She said, all right, I'll do it. I'll take the capital G out. But in the end, they never published the book. The reason, she says, is they now demand a Soviet orientation and have begun an open, frenzied attack against anything mystical. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, interestingly, the major difficulty here was not the same-sex attraction at all. Mm, That is interesting. Yeah, it was the sort of religious angle. She hasn't that much luck just in, you know, what she wants to write about lining up with what society will accept. Like, you know, she wrote about same-sex attraction, that wasn't okay, and then she moved on to religion, and then that had stopped being okay. Yeah, that's absolutely what happened. She had her kind of big spiritual period right over the revolution. Yeah, like if she'd been writing about God ten years before, that would have been fine. That would have been totally fine, but ten years before, she really wanted to write about having sex with women. Yeah. (laughs) Bad luck. At the beginning of 1923, so... This is a couple of years later, really. Ludmilla also has tuberculosis. Ooh. I mean, tuberculosis is a very contagious illness, I understand. Yeah. yeah. And Sophia herself seems to be going through both, like, physical health issues and mental health issues. 
Mm. which I think are just partly brought on by her frustration with her physical health and partly by the whole situation in Russia. She describes herself as having a fainting fit of the spirit and writes, I'm sick almost all the time, bronchitis and constant stomach problems. I'm utterly miserable about the poverty and exitlessness that I see in the lives of people close to me. I try, but I can't do anything to help them. I've never felt so powerless. Hmm. So it's a very hard time for both of them. But around the same time, she also met Olga Tsubabila, a maths teacher at Moscow University. Okay, so I'm going to back up a bit. What did Ludmilla do? Ludmilla was an actress. Okay. The way Bergen wrote about Ludmilla, she suggested that they were lovers briefly and then friends later. But I think what was really happening there was that Bergen was not quite sure how to deal with polyamory. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Because what essentially seems to happen is that she maintains this close relationship with Ludmilla Mm -hmm. consistently. So, yes, around this time she meets Olga Subabilla. Olga had been widowed during the Civil War and now quietly lived out her lesbian preferences. That sounds like... (laughs) Out of being widowed, quite a nice outcome. Yeah, I think it was probably to some extent quite nice to her that she had the kind of respectability of being a widow Mm -hmm. and then was able to just teach maths and live out her lesbian preferences. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, again, Bergen remained on the fence about whether they became lovers. She said that Olga occupied a unique emotional and spiritual place in Parnock's life. But to me, looking at, like, the poetry she wrote, it seems unlikely that they were not lovers, Okay, personally. Can you read us some of this poetry? The one that I have written down here, she writes to Olga, and it says, Like music, I love your sadness, your smile, so similar to tears, like the tinkle of cracked crystal, like the fragrance of December roses. What the hell? I don't know what she's getting at there, but I don't think you write it to a friend. She has the sort of endearing pet names for Olga. She calls her Little Deer. Okay. I'm still Um, hung up on your sadness is like music. Like, if someone wrote me that poem, I'd be like, what are you doing? Stop (laughs) letting Spotify recommend you my chemical romance. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's some of that. Yeah. Yeah. That's quite like an emotionally involved poem. Like, there's obviously some intense emotions going on there for Sophia. Like, even though it's a bit of a strange thing to say, obviously she's very emotionally invested in Olga in whatever way that is. Yeah, that's what I sort of felt about that. Like, I definitely can't say, oh, these two had sex or anything like that. Mm -hmm. But I don't feel like sex should really be the metric of whether or not they're lovers. So for the next couple of years, she's in a relationship with both Ludmilla and Olga And I think Ludmilla found this difficult at first, but Mm -hmm. seems basically to have come to accept it. But then in January 1925, Ludmilla had some kind of mental breakdown and was institutionalized. Mm -hmm. This, I think I will clarify, having just said that, doesn't seem to be connected with the like romantic relationships that Sophia has, Mm -hmm. because for the first month of her institutionalization, Sophia is not allowed to see Ludmilla. I'm not sure why they thought this was a good idea. They had some weird ideas about mental health care at this time because she's able to send Olga in her place. Oh. Which is weird. So are you saying that as an explanation for why you don't think the breakdown was related to the romantic entanglements they were involved in? Yes, because if Ludmilla had had an issue with Sophia and Olga's relationship, then presumably Sophia would not have felt comfortable sending Olga to see Ludmilla when she couldn't. Oh, okay. I'm just hung up on the fact that 
apparently Olga's allowed to see her. Yeah. If the people running the institution know that there was some kind of lesbian relationship between Sophia and Ludmilla, it makes sense to me that they would keep Sophia away from just a homophobic standpoint. Yeah, Mm. that's a possibility. I'm not really sure. What she is institutionalised for is not to do with her same-sex relationships. As far as I can tell, she's genuinely having some mental health issues at this point. Apparently, at first in the institution, she's very kind of upset and paranoid that her friends are relieved that she's gone. Mm -hmm. She tells Olga that, you know, she thinks probably it's much easier for her friends now that she's not there. Mm -hmm. And she just seems to be having a bad time of life Mm. when Sophia is allowed to see her she says it's unbearably hard to leave her after a visit and leave her alone like that often when I'm having a conversation with someone I'll suddenly seem to see her room and Mashenka which is Ludmilla it's a diminutive sure alone alone not physically but spiritually endlessly alone with all her darkness Uh she's in the um asylum for several months after which she is discharged and the three women together rent a cottage in the countryside to That's spend nice. the summer mm. and hopefully get over all the emotional turmoil that they've been through yeah. with Ludmilla in the asylum and mm-hmm. with Sophia's health issues as well. And they do this regularly for the next few years. The three of them rent a cottage together in the summer. That sounds nice. It does just sound very nice, and that's sort of why I suspect that when Bergen said, oh, Ludmilla and Sophia ceased being in a relationship and became friends, I think she just wasn't sure how to deal with mm-hmm. yeah. this situation, because clearly the three of them are very close at this yeah. point. Yeah, I mean, if they're renting cottages together on the regular. <laughs> yeah, they are. <laughs> terrible breakup happened to you. Yeah. In 1931, so Sophia is over 40 at this point, She, after a long pause, begins writing poetry again. This is probably a combination of a period of improved health for her, and she's fallen in love with an opera singer Hmm. whose name is Maria Maksakova. I'm going to read to you one of the poems that she wrote about Maria, and I don't know how it sounded in Russian, but in English it's quite cute. It goes, I like the fact that you have eyes that slant, And also that your soul comes slanted. I like the headlong briskness of your gait and the chilly feeling of your shoulders. You're frivolous and none too ready to talk. Your tight-drawn thighs, just like a mermaid's. Okay. (laughs) And it was an odd poem. That was weird. She mentions quite often when she talks about women's thighs, she compares them to mermaids. (laughs) Which I quite liked. So she likes it if your thighs touch. I think so. Okay. I think so. I like, I like the chilly it. feeling of your shoulders. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that really gets me going. <laughs> it's one of those things where I always want to read these for, like, one little detail in them, but because they're in translation, yeah. they're just so weird. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I don't know it's anything not... about Russian, too. And poetry is so, like, idiomatic and, like, yeah. it plays yeah. with language a lot. It's very hard. And especially, I think, like, personal poetry. Like, she addresses these to specific people. In your native language, you're often reading and you're like, I'm not sure what you're referring to there. Yeah, there's like in-jokes and stuff in there. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah. it's like her poetry about Olga is often about deer. Deer. As in the animal. And the reason for that is some kind of pun they have about Olga's name and the word for deer in Russian. Oh, okay, right, yeah. But that just doesn't make sense from the outside. Yeah, yeah. You'd have to translate her name to Deirdre or something. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. 
She had another lover in her 40s not long after this, whose name was Nina Vedeneva, who she may have met through Olga's work at the university. Wait, at the university? Yeah, Olga to taught maths. Taught maths. Oh, sorry, I got them confused, and I was thinking that Olga was the opera singer, and then I was just like, what's happening? Marina was a poet. Maria is an opera singer. Olga is a maths teacher. Ludmilla is an actress. And Nina is a physicist. She works at the university. Sophia Cole likes the hard sciences. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, obviously. (laughs) Obviously. She obviously feels a little bit at this point, and I think it's a combination of her ill health and social pressure, that she feels like she's an old woman at this point, and she's being a little bit silly falling in love with people. Aww. Are the women she's falling in love with about her age? Or are they yeah, like younger? they're about okay. her age. So about Nina, she writes several poems where she describes her silver hair and her lovely white head. Oh, oh, that's nice. And the same goes for Ludmilla and Olga, is they're all around her age. Mm. I think the only time that she's had that kind of age difference dynamic in a relationship was with Marina. Yeah. And even then, there was only six years between them. Yeah, yeah. they just they made just, the most of it. <laughs> yeah, they just really committed to that. People talk a lot about how her relationship with Nina inspired Sophia's most mature poetic work. They talk mm. about how she's kind of eschewed cliches and managed to sort of create something new out of this like typical overblown 19th century romantic poetry, which was fairly popular in Russia. But weirdly, in spite of telling me this, the next thing that Bergen did, like the two major poems that she showed me about Nina, were very like cute, silly doggerel. I will read you one. Again, it'll sound a little bit weird because it's in translation, but this was my favourite one. It goes, Oh my love, my madcap demon. You're so bony that while eating, a cannibal in search of meat would very likely break his teeth. But I'm above that sort of crudeness, and besides, I'm somewhat toothless. I won't tear you all to bits, since I'll eat you with my lips. What the- (laughs) And it's just this, like, very silly piece of doggerel that's like, You're very skinny. Cannibals wouldn't want to eat you, but I'll kiss you. Oh, it's kissing that it's referencing. Yeah. I understood it differently. (laughs) (laughs) It may be kissing, it may be oral sex, but she's talking about, like, yeah, physical intimacy, basically, and (laughs) not eating. She seems to low-key insult the appearance of these (laughs) women in an affectionate way quite often. Yeah, she does. It's true. It's true. Yeah, when you were saying she eschewed cliches, I was thinking, like, that poem we read a minute ago about Maria wasn't very cliched. Like, all that stuff about, like, her chilly shoulders and stuff. Yeah. Like, I guess you find in a love poem in that kind of context of, like, the writer of the poem is pursuing the woman and the woman is And the is woman is cold, them. yeah. But it didn't really have that vibe. No, the vibe was just like, I like the way you're kind of cold and aloof. Yeah. I guess, yeah. Mm. And also your tight-drawn thighs, like a mermaid. Like a mermaid. I mean, to be fair, being like, hey, baby, no cannibal would ever want to eat you, you're too bony, is not a cliche of love poetry. <laughs> This is true. Yeah, that is some new content. (laughs) This is true. (laughs) Please read another. Yeah, hang on, I'll find another. There was another very cute one that I enjoyed. I like it when we do poets. Yeah. I like it best when we do poets in languages that I understand. Yeah, yeah. Because, like, even if you only know some of a language, you can still do that kind of, like, looking things up and double checking things and being like why did they translate this and in russian i've just had to be like one i don't have access to the original Mm. a lot of these and two even if i did this doesn't do anything yeah yeah Mm. no yeah here we go the top the cannibal poem but But i'm keen to hear more (laughs) 
Okay. okay, just to clarify, because I told you Nina's surname before, and you've probably forgotten it, but her name is Nina Vedeneva. Okay, oh. Sophia writes this poem. It's just a little poem. It's four lines, and it goes, Don't ask what's laid the poet low, and why she acts so dreamy. She's simply been, from head to toe, Vedeneavized completely. That was pretty good. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it was less original than the cannibal poem, but still good. I mean, I'm not saying at this time that she didn't write other serious poetry too, mm. but I just thought it was interesting that people sort of say, oh, this was the time of her most serious and mature work. And this is obviously a time where she's also just writing a lot of sort of silly, cute love poetry. Mm. Mm. Yeah. And I almost think people kind of want to make this narrative of her getting older and more serious and more mature. Yeah. Where she's obviously still having fun. Yeah, she's definitely still having fun. Mm. Her very final poem to Nina, though, she wrote in July 1933. And it is a serious poem. She writes it as a farewell, basically, because her health is failing. And she essentially writes this goodbye poem, which as soon as it reached Nina by mail, because she was staying with Olga in the country. Mm -hmm. And as soon as the poem reached Nina by mail, Nina came immediately to see her by which time she was bedridden. Mm. And on August 25th, she took a turn for the worse. Olga telegrammed for Lyudmila, but by the time Lyudmila arrived, Sophia had already passed away. And what Lyudmila writes about her arrival, she wrote to a friend, and she said, I arrived at 5pm to find our Sonia already in her coffin. Her face was amazing. It appeared young and was smiling with joy. Mm. So she died with three of her favourite women present. Do you have the final poem that she I do, actually. So the last poem she wrote goes, Come what may, you wrote, we shall be happy. Yes, my darling, happiness has come to me in life. Now, however, mortal weariness overcomes my heart and shuts my eyes. Now, without rebelling or resisting, I hear how my heart beats its retreat. I get weaker, and the leash that tightly bound the two of us is slackening. Now the wind blows freely higher and higher. Everything's in bloom and all is still. Till we meet again, my darling. Can't you hear me? I'm telling you goodbye, my far-off friend. That is quite a thing to receive in the mail. Yeah, and she received that in the mail. It took a couple of weeks to get there. Yeah. So by the time she arrived, it was, you know, just in time. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. I'm glad that Sophia, like, despite living in a country in a time that was probably, like, reasonably homophobic, had a pretty positive experience with that. She honestly seems to have, and I just think partly it's just the kind of circles she spent her time in were fairly accepting. Mm. Mm. Or at least they were fairly kind of surface level accepting. Yeah. Yeah. And then sometimes she had troubles like Vladimir. Mm. Vladimir. He doesn't deserve the name of Wolkenstein, which is Vladimir a solid Wolkenstein, name. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to take it and give it to a vampire character so that whenever people Google him, the vampire character will come up instead. <laughs> yes. and, so, and so I will damn his memory. <laughs> she had so many girlfriends. She did. And I like the fact that especially towards the end of her life. Yeah. She'd sort of had this, like, network of girlfriends, basically. Yeah, Yeah. that's good. That's nice. I like how she seemed to just sort of, like, add them as opposed to, like, breaking up with one and getting a new one. Yeah. That's nice. Yeah. Yeah, like, in her, like, last days, they were like, oh, no, we have to get all four of us in the room. (laughs) Yeah, and I like, like, I assume based on the fact that, like, her and Ludmilla and 
Olga. Olga would, like, have a cottage together and stuff. Yeah. Like, obviously the girlfriends were, like, getting along well too. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. It was good. Obviously they did as well because she felt she could kind of send Olga and be like, go and see Ludmilla for yeah. me while she's in the hospital. Were any of her girlfriends in relationships with each other? Do we know? I don't know. It's never really clear whether they were just good friends mm. or whether they were in a relationship as well. I'm mm. not sure. Olga, Ludmilla and Sophia is definitely kind of presented as this like triad of mutual support and friendship. But okay. it's unclear to me what the friendship between Olga and Ludmilla was like, whether that was a romantic relationship or whether they were just friends. Mm-hmm. Okay. I don't really know. Mm-hmm. That was very nice. Very nice. I hate the way a good queer person dies at the end of every episode. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's always at least nice when they, like, die peacefully holding hands with their partner. Yeah, Yeah. like, she had all her partners there. She did. Yeah. Yeah. And, like, how it's like, if she gets a wife and it's like, she got at least three. (laughs) She had a number. (laughs) She had a surplus of wife. (laughs) And a monkey. It's true. Amazing. Thank you for listening. This has been Queer as Fact. I'm Irene. I'm Alice. I'm Eli. If you enjoyed this episode and wanted to hear more, you can find us on iTunes or Podbean or wherever podcasts come from. If you want to leave us a review on iTunes, that would be really great. And we will read you out on air as a reward. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so we started doing that when we got access to our iTunes reviews, which was a bit of a process. Don't worry about it. And we had a backlog, but now we've been, every time we record, kind of you know, maybe like one or two more has come up. So as of recording, we only have one new one to read you, and the title is Awesome Podcast by Gay and Exhausted. (laughs) Relatable. Yes. (laughs) Uh, And they say, I recently started listening to this podcast and find it really informative and interesting. It's great to have some place to learn about in-depth queer history, especially from such amazing hosts. Oh, yeah. thanks. thanks. So that was a relatively positive comment. That's good. <laughs> that was nice. Yeah, that was nice. Thank you very much for taking the time to review us. You can contact us directly at queerasfact at gmail.com or we're on Facebook, Twitter and Tumblr as Queer as Fact. We'll be back on June 22nd with a Queer as Fiction episode on 1996 Robin Williams' film The Birdcage. And we'll be back on July 1st with our next full-length episode on Horace Walpole, 18th century writer and man of letters. Thanks for listening. <laughs>